0: we starting a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we're going to talk about the passage that came right before it. So, reading from Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 23, I say to you, hear the word of God. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we begin uh, this new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount um, that you would use it to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that also you would use it to enable us uh, to be living uh, the good life, the best life that you possibly have for us. I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to begin with a question this morning that I that I often ask, you know, some type of question. And the question today, and I want you to think about it for a second, is what would it look like for you to be living your best life? Right? So the the the, the question that philosophers and dreamers and folks people have been asking for, for millennia, and Instagram has been asking it for a few years right, is what is the good life? What, it, what would it mean for you to be living your best life? Right, so it, my guess is some of you immediately thought, you know, I wish my finances were a little better, you know, if we had a little breathing room, maybe we we're out of debt, or maybe if I was filthy rich, right, something like that. You know, some of you might be thinking like, oh, I see myself on a beach <laughs> with one of those umbrella drinks, I don't have to think about anything, right, that would be my best life. Right, so Some of you moms out there are like, I just want to get my kids out of car seats. <laughs> as soon as I don't have to do that anymore, I'll be living my best life. And so it's interesting because my guess is that almost no one here thought, oh, the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> right? Living my best life would mean me living out the Sermon on the Mount. Did you think that? Well, it's interesting because Jesus actually thinks that. Right, Jesus is the one. It's, it's his idea, not not my idea. It's not. It's not sort of like this fancy, like, okay, you know, Samuel and I sat around this week. We were cooking up schemes. How can we? Get, how can we hook people in to make them really think this is an important series? Well, since everyone's sort of selfish, let's let's call it "Living Your Best Life." And Jesus actually, when he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the the that the whole purpose of it is for you and I to be living our best life. Now, it's interesting because Sermon on the Mount is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, passages in the whole Bible. In fact, it's so famous, I, I thought, I'm just going to do a quick search on the Google for has, have any presidents or presidential candidates referred to the Sermon on the Mount. And just in 2016, so this sounded good in my head. I'm going to try this. So 2016 at Liberty University, Bernie Sanders quotes the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, I am motivated by a vision that exists in all great religions, in Christianity, Judaism, in Islam, in Buddhism, and other religions, and that vision is so beautifully and clearly stated in Matthew 7, 12. It states, so when everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Some will object that the golden rule has to do with individual conduct, not with government policy, but leave that debate to one side. Right? That Bernie Sanders thought, I want to connect with all these Christians at Liberty University, so I'll just use the Sermon on the Mount. It's easy. David Muir, same year, he asked Hillary Clinton, Mrs. Clinton, what role does the Bible play in your life? And she said, I've never done this before, so you're here. Uh, One cannot read the Sermon on the Mount (laughs) without thinking that we have to be more humble, we have to be more kind and respectful, we have to do all we can to help our fellow men and women. (laughs) Okay. Um, Barack Obama, in his book, The Audacity of Hope, I've never tried Obama, let's do it, let's see what happens. I'm not willing to help the state deny American citizens a civil union that confers Equivalent rights on such uh, basic matters as hospital visitation or health insurance coverage, simply because uh, people love people they love are the same sex. Nor am I willing to accept a reading of the Bible that considers an obscure line in Romans to be more defining of Christianity than the Sermon on the Mount. And okay, so what he has just said is his 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 understanding of marriage and sexuality comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Easy. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is so important that it's even more important than the book of Romans, some other book of the Bible. Even Donald Trump. (laughs) Just kidding, he'd never talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't. (laughs) Um, But my point to reading all that is all those politicians and a lot of people make the same error. There's two big errors that you make when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, or they are possible to make. Um, The first error that every one of those politicians made, and that a lot of other presidents, like Roosevelt and Truman, I could have read you a lot of other ones, is the, the first error that people tend to make about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's easy, or it's obvious, right? I mean, basically, if people just lived the Sermon on the Mount, life would be great. Or if you said, you know, Tommy, what would your best life look like? And I said, if everyone else lived the Sermon on the Mount, (laughs) my life would be a lot happier. Right? It's easy. Just do these things. And I think whenever someone says that, Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or anyone, I wonder if they've ever read it. Jesus talks about hell in the Sermon on the Mount. One, Bernie what do you think about that you know Jesus talks about I mean when you think about things like remember Jesus talks about adultery he said you've heard it said don't commit adultery but I say if you've even committed uh, if you've even looked upon a woman with lust in your heart you're guilty of adultery and I think that's not that easy that's not easy at all so one error is to think the Sermon on the Mount is just easy peasy lemon squeezy on the other side is to think it's impossible. So you look at it and you say, I could never meet that standard, and why should I even try? It says, be holy as your Father in heaven is is, is holy. It says all these things, and it's like, you know what, I'm not even going to bother. If that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't have what it takes, so I'm not going to bother. Jesus, here's the thing, Jesus not only taught the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, but Jesus saves us from those two errors if we will just listen to what he says about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in his conclusion, he tells us the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read to you the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24. He says, everyone then, he's just finished the Sermon on the Mount, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So what does Jesus say that the Sermon on the Mount is about? Jesus says the Sermon on the Mount is about wisdom. Whoever hears these words of mine is like the wise man. And what is wisdom in the Bible? Wisdom in the Bible is all about living your best life. Read the book of Proverbs. It's written to sons, but sons and daughters by a father who's saying, if you want to have your best life, follow this wisdom. And Jesus says, "If you you listen to my whoever listens to my words and does them, he's like a wise man. His, you, you will be blessed. You will have your best life if you do these things." Now, here's where it gets interesting as well. So when you look at the beatitudes, so so as soon as he starts preaching the beatitudes, the the, the very next thing that comes along, he says, "Blessed," right? His "Blessed are the poor in spirit." Blessed are those who mourn, you know, blessed are those blessed are the meek. Now, Jesus says you can have your best life in the midst of storms, even. You can have your best life when everything else seems falling apart. And what's important is to understand what this word blessed means here. Not best, but blessed. See the word that, that begins all these beatitudes. Is, is the word makarios in Greek. And these things, these statements are called makarisms, right, for you note-takers. And the, the interesting thing is that word blessed in the Sermon on the Mount is a very hard word to capture in English. So if you were going to fill out the word blessed and, as you read it in the Sermon on the Mount, it basically means um, wholeness, it means completeness, it means fullness. It means it it means shalom. In other words, the way things are supposed to be. And so you could you could translate the, the first beatitude by saying something like this: those who are living their best life, their most whole, most complete, fulfilling life are poor in spirit. Okay? Let me say that again. Those who are who are living their best, most whole, most complete. Fulfilling life are poor in spirit. Those who are living their best, most whole, most complete, fulfilling life are those who mourn. You see, see what I'm doing there? It's it's sort of like. So why do we say blessed? Well, it it reminded me of like when my girls were young. I used to do this to them all the time when they would ask me a question. Like, remember the group? There there was a, a group called the Fat Boys, a music group singing. Someone asked me about them, and I'm like, oh, yeah, the fat boys. They actually were going to originally call themselves the morbidly obese fellows who just gave up trying. And I was like, hey, why don't you just say fat? Rolls off tongue a lot easier. And the girls would be like, huh. That's what we're doing here with the word blessed. It would be awkward to say that whole sentence every time. Blessed in English is just the easiest way to capture these things. But the reason I'm pointing it out is because we tend to think that we're blessed because we did the right thing or blessed because God's just showing us grace, which that's one kind of blessing. But the kind of blessing we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is the kind of blessing like we talked about in Psalm 1 this morning, right? We prayed Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does what? Who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, that kind of blessing. You want to have your best life? Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't take a seat with sinners. That's what's going on here. And so as we consider that, we jump in, Jesus pulls his disciples aside, and that's important to notice that who the original audience for the Sermon on the Mount is. It's not everyone in the world, right? Jesus didn't stand on the side of the mountain and say, all right, y'all, listen up. I don't want to have to say this four times. You know, He didn't say that. It says he went to the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. And the, the, the seating is a position of a rabbi who is actually a but he's, he's talking to his few disciples. At this point, we know there's only four disciples. There might be more by this time. By the end of the sermon, it's clear that people on the, there are people around the edges who are listening in. That Jesus sort of addresses here and there. So he's he's teaching how to have his disciples what it means to have their best life. He's teaching them um, what it means really to live out this thing that he has been proclaiming. And so before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at two things this morning. You're going, wow, we've been looking at a lot of things already. The two things that I want to consider before we actually jump into the Sermon on the Mount next week are basically the scope or the substance of Jesus' ministry and the scope of his ministry. Because you, if you if you bypass the substance of Jesus ministry and the scope of Jesus ministry you are inevitably going to read the Sermon on the Mount wrongly so let's look first at the the substance of Jesus ministry look at verse 23 it says and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so what is the substance of of Jesus' ministry? Well, the substance of Jesus' ministry is threefold, right? It's teaching, it's preaching, and it's healing, right? It says he, he went about throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming or preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and number three, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So let's look first, What did when Jesus went around teaching in their synagogues, what did, what did he teach? You ever wonder that? Well, at least we have at least one example of what he did in their synagogues. In Luke chapter 4, let me read that to you. Um, so it says in Luke chapter four sixteen, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. mic drop and we know that they knew exactly what he was saying because a few verses later they want to kill him isn't this joseph's son who does he think he is jesus taught in their synagogues that he was the one that they were waiting for Every, every week you guys talk about the Bible, and every week you talk about this coming Messiah, this one who's going to finally deliver you from your sins, who's going to finally deliver you from your sorrows. Guess what? I'm here. Honestly, I'd probably think that guy was crazy. But that's what Jesus did. He said that he was the one. He was the coming one who would give sight to the blind. He was the one who would give hearing to the deaf. He was the one that would deliver them and deliver us from our sins and sorrows. That's what he taught about himself. It also says the second thing he did is he went around proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. Now, what is the good news of the kingdom? Well, the good news of the kingdom, of course, starts with the fact that there's a lot of bad news, right? And the bad news is that, that... his, current, his, his, his audience back then and his current one here, all of us are sinful and broken and alienated from God by nature and by choice, that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And when Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, well, the good news was this, is that the, the one who could, was going to save us from our sins had come. That he would come, he would die, and then three days later, he would raise again from the dead. That he would reconcile us to God the Father. That's the good news of the kingdom. And the fact, whenever you hear this language about kingdom, it means that God's reign is beginning. That things aren't haven't been the way they're supposed to be, but now they are going to start being the way they are supposed to be because of my coming. You see, that when Jesus proclaimed the gospel, the, the if you remember like in the Chronicles of... Uh, Narnia, the first one lying the witch in the wardrobe. Remember the, the Pevensey children have gone through a wardrobe or you know, in America, it would be a closet. and they found themselves in this land of Narnia and the white witch is in charge of Narnia and Edmund, the sort of the, the black sheep of the family, he has fallen under her spell. He has eaten Turkish delight, whatever that is, and he just can't he, he, he is enthralled to her. He is enslaved. And remember Lucy, sort of the hero besides Aslan, Lucy asks Aslan, can anything be done to save Edmund? Remember what Aslan says? All shall be done. That's it. All. That's what Jesus says when he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God. You say, can anything be done about my sins? Can anything be done to help me? Can anything be done to save me? And Jesus comes back and says, all shall be done. All shall be done. No one, the, the, there's, there's no person, no sin that Jesus cannot forgive. You know, Charles Spurgeon, maybe you know, I love Charles Spurgeon. I read him almost every day. Charles Spurgeon said, there will, there will not be any person in hell, not one person in hell who will ever say, I went to Jesus To be forgiven of my sins. I went to Jesus for help. And he cast me out. No one. Because whoever will come unto Jesus. Will be saved. Whoever calls upon Jesus. He will hear and he will answer. Maybe not in the way and in the timing we want. But the promises that he will. You see so the. substance of his ministry is the the teaching about himself and the proclaiming of this good news but then the the third part the healing gets to the scope of his ministry notice it says that he came about um, healing every disease and every affliction among the people so his fame spread throughout all syria so his his the scope is not just um People, but it's geographic. Syria is the next country over, right? So his fame spread through all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So first thing you see where it says he healed every disease and every affliction among the people. And so I looked up this week, you know, when I'm studying, I'm like, why would he say he healed every disease and every affliction? Is there a difference between diseases and afflictions? And what do you know? There is, right? Diseases that Jesus healed it were diseases, right? They're were, were maladies. Afflictions is basically everything else. The word in Greek means something like soft or weak, but it also can be used of sexual brokenness. It can be used of those who struggle with their sexuality, it can be used for people who have been abused. So it's bigger than, he just went around healing. you. are know, sick, you got a cold, you got a virus, you got, you know, boom, you're good. These are big things. He healed every disease and every affliction. And, and a lot of times people say, well, you know, if you knew how bad I was, you wouldn't say that, that Jesus can heal anybody, that Jesus will save anybody. I think Matthew's trying to make a point here because notice what he says next. He says, they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. and the word there is acute pains. And he healed them. Those oppressed by demons. When Matthew talks about those oppressed by demons, he doesn't just say cast them out. says he healed them. That was a problem. That was a, that things were not the way they're supposed to be. He healed, and it says epileptics there. The word there is literally lunatics. Crazy people who, thought, who everyone else thought was helpless. Everyone else thought, man, that person is just too broken, too far gone to help. Jesus fixed them. Jesus healed them. And then, of course, it says um, the paralytics, who those, those who couldn't walk, those who couldn't move, and he healed them. What all those people have in common is that they were helpless and hopeless in and of themselves. Every one of them. And every one of us is helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves. If you think that your goodness is good enough to make you right with God, I had news for you, and it's bad news. It's not. God could care a whit about your goodness. He doesn't care. What he wants is you. He wants you to come to him. And for those who say, if you only knew how bad I was... You'd redefine sin. You wouldn't expect me to just go to Jesus because my sins are too big. They're too bad. He could never forgive. He could never accept. And there's the interesting thing about, right, it's a cliche, but there's a thing here that that preachers often say, you know what the Greek word for all is? (laughs) All. He doesn't exclude anybody. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, if you're out there saying, if Jesus just knew my sin and how bad it was, you're, that's actually just prideful. You think your sin is worse than mine? Come on. If you only knew. But the good news of the gospel is that no matter who you are, Jesus offers healing. And forgiveness. No matter who you are, Jesus not only offers you healing and forgiveness, but the very righteousness of God. You see, before you enter into the Sermon on the Mount and you say, I need to start living like a Christian, you actually have to become a Christian. So the question is, are you a Christian here? And if, and if you are a Christian, do you actually, are you living as a Christian in the sense that you trust Jesus for your goodness, you trust Jesus for your acceptance, you trust Jesus for, to be the one who reconciles you to the Father rather than your own good works, rather than your own sense of duty, all of these kinds of things. You know, let me finish with this. The bottom line is this, is that no person, no disease, no malady, nothing is outside the scope of the gospel. If we come to the, to the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of the Gospel, we avoid those two errors, by the way. If we come to the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of the Gospel, we say the Sermon on the Mount isn't easy on one hand. On the other hand, we say it's not impossible. In fact, we start to look at the Sermon on the Mount, and instead of it condemning us, it becomes sort of aspirational. We start saying to ourselves, I want to be the, this kind of person. I, I want to be the kind of person who practices the golden rule. I want to be the kind of person who is generous. I want to be the kind of person who prays and fasts. I want to be this kind of person. Now, here's the thing. I hope that's true because we're going to be talking about it until June. <laughs> Think about it. We <laughs> pray for us. Father, I pray that as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount, we would approach it not as if it were easy and not as if it were impossible, but approach it. Uh, as people who have been changed, who have been forgiven of their sins and are being changed into the kind of people who are able to live their best life as, as you've laid it out here. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.